0: You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. There was a question uh, that we wanted to address from the last speaker, a question about the Everly Well testing or something like that. Uh, we were talking in the back. We think that that's an IgG-based test, not an IgE-based test. So I'm not really sure what value that would have in terms of, uh, in terms of food allergies or the like. You know, I think it's a really difficult world out there in terms of dietary sensitivities, food sensitivities, and how those inter, how those interplay with with dermatologic disease or some of the other conditions that we treat. It's very very complex, and there are a lot of uh, companies that are making enormous amounts of money in that space, um, but with with testing where we don't really know the real value of it. So, I would just you know proceed with caution and make sure you understand the 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 test. So. No conflicts of interest. So acne, you all um, know, like I said, I'm preaching to the choir. 40 to 50 million patients a year, supposedly around two and a half billion dollars a year are spent on acne treatment. 85% is in the adolescent to teenage age group between 12 and 24. And It's a disease of developed countries. There's earlier onset of it um, and it tends to show at the first sign of puberty. We used to say that people outgrew it, but we really don't think that we, we don't think that that's a guarantee. There are plenty of people, maybe higher than 12%, certainly I feel like that in my practice, who have acne well into adulthood. It may evolve, and the actual triggers may, may change, but they still have acne. It also doesn't discriminate. It doesn't care who you are. It's just some folks have better ways of covering it up than others. Oh, did you see the Missouri, my fellow Missourian in there? Do you know who, which one's the Missourian? Yeah, I get mistaken for that guy all the time. So you know that there's, there's acne is nearly universal in, in the human animal. We know that there are at least four interrelated factors, the formation of the microcomido, P-acnes colonization of the follicle, increased sebum production, and then the inflammatory mediators that form around the pilosebaceous units. They all interact to trigger this inflammatory process that we treat every day in our practices. I apologize for kind of running fast, but I want to get you guys out by lunch. There are, somebody was asking me about this both yesterday and in the session earlier today. There are different types of acne. One thing to be aware of, what gets called neonatal acne is usually not. Acne, it's what we call neonatal cephalic pustulosis, and that is um, a pustular eruption of the face that, uh, and the, especially sebaceous areas of the skin, that probably due to skin colonization with malsesia. Uh, if it's too bad, you can treat it. Sometimes the topical ketoconazole or a little low-potency hydrocortisone. Infantile acne that you see between six weeks and six months of age is more common in boys, and infantile acne can be quite striking, and very much mimic uh, the acne that you see in teenagers. I have had uh, patients with nodulocystic infantile acne where I've had to put them on uh, topical retinoids, topical antibiotics, oral antibiotics, and even almost put them on isotretinoin because it was so bad it was scarring. So you've got, it's rare, but it happens, there's some thought that those infants that make that type of acne may have an increased chance of making uh, scarring nodular cystic acne once they hit puberty. They are very uh, hyper responsive to androgens and maternal androgens that they have taken up around the time of delivery is what triggers that. In mid childhood, if uh, one to seven years of age, if a child comes in with progressing acne like you would see in a much older teenager, you need to do a better, a, a full work up on that child, both a good exam and consider doing um, uh, lab studies to rule out some type of underlying endocrine abnormality. You definitely want to evaluate them for uh, uh, development of other secondary sexual characteristics. Pre-adolescent acne, these are the these are the kids that come in with early stage acne whose parents are like we can't believe she's getting pimples already. Um, This is pretty common, it can start a year or two uh, before they hit puberty, is very often comedonal. So we already had a review of diet and acne. My take on it is exactly the same as the last speaker's, about all I recommend is, a, is a, watching all the free sugars, trying to go for a low glycemic index diet. My line with my teenagers is, we all know how we're supposed to eat, a good balanced diet without a lot of junk food, without a bunch of refined sugars, and that's what we try and go for. Um, Dr. Rosen touched on this, so I don't think I need to, I, I need to um, go into great detail except that and we'll talk about a little bit near the end is critically important what we do in even treating acne although we get called pimple poppers by by our friends who do they call when their kids got bad acne right it's important and you make a big difference in these uh, patients lives when you treat their acne so when we assess the patient you all know the you all know the deal that we're we're assessing the difference between the comedonal and inflammatory how severe are they and we know that there are a range of types but in general they tend to fall into a few groups and so when we when we start designing a treatment plan for our patients the key is for me at least, how can I maximize adherence? It's great if you know the treatment algorithm and if the algorithm says they should do this topical retinoid and this topical benzoyl peroxide. It doesn't matter if they don't do it. So the algorithm is pointless if they're not using the medication, if they refuse to use it. So your job is to, our job is to be the interpreter, the way I see it, between this mass, this palette of all these different acne medicines and the individual patient. And our job is to find the right combination that works for them, for their lives, for their activities. Set appropriate expectations. They're not going to be better in two days. They want to be better in one, but they're not. Uh, And then you choose treatment working with the patients with their severity and with, um, uh, uh, with the type of acne that they've got working from the bottom of the pyramid all the way up to the top and we'll briefly touch on at the end some of the newer some of the newer things that are uh, supposedly coming down the pipeline so here's a 13 year old male he's active in sports he shows up with these lesions he's tried some face wash without benefit nice standard open comedones non-inflammatory a mixture there are a few little uh, inflammatory papules but very superficial so standard run-of-the-mill comedonal acne In some ways I think this is sometimes the hardest acne to treat because this is a management problem this is something where we have to convince the patients to use topical medication we try and get them to use things like benzoyl peroxide which is a great medication and incredibly hard to use in real life we try and get them to use retinoids topical retinoids are wonderful medications and very very user unfriendly so how do we do it? I like to keep things simple. I think, you know, it, it all might sound good on paper to have a, a wash that they do Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and a different wash Tuesday, Thursday, and then a cream they put on in the morning, a cream they put on at noon, and then three things that they do at night, but no teenager is going to do that, right? You've got to keep your regimen incredibly simple, and you've got to get buy-in. So, Um, and you try and get around the inherent irritation of most of our medications by getting synergy by combining therapies so I didn't even know it was going to do that so we choose from this palette of options that we talked about topical retinoids sometimes topical antibiotics if there's inflammation benzoyl peroxide and some of the other products that are available so for me, I, um, I like utilizing over-the-counter agents when I can for this type of acne just because it's easy for people to get. And if they run out, they can just go to the store. They don't have to call me for a prescription refill. Um, I'm a big fan of benzoyl peroxide as long as the patients don't have an allergic contact dermatitis to it. Uh, I, I, I like the fact that benzoyl peroxide is broadly antimicrobial and the chances of bacterial resistance developing to it are essentially nil. I like the fact that it plays well with our other medicines and decreases bacterial resistance to other antibiotics. So I use it whenever I can. Remember that a higher percentage of benzoyl peroxide does not mean it's going to work any better. Very easy for people to find 10 percent products out there, very easy to get irritated by them. I recommend 5 percent or less um, because again I want them to use it. I'm a big fan of washes because I don't like to leave on benzoyl peroxide because it's messy and it bleaches everything. So I try and it's much more irritating so I try and get away with the washes whenever I can. One of the uh, Uh, agents I always forget about that's both prescription and OTC is uh, sulfur sodium sulfacetamide. My nurse practitioner who I worked with uh, for a decade and a half who did a lot of acne loved the various sodium uh, sulfacetamide sulfur products out there and would use those as an adjunct in her regimen both for rosacea and for acne. So I try and always keep that in mind. The other thing you've got to watch out for is all the different cleansers that these kids want to use. They want to scrub away their acne, which of course is just going to irritate the skin further. That's not going to work. So you've got to um, uh, caution them that regular cleansing is a good idea, but you don't want them traumatizing their skin. Retinoids, topical, uh, I consider it first line. Retinoids is what I try for so many of my patients. I think they, they're they useful in almost all forms of acne. If you've got somebody with purely, purely inflammatory acne, sometimes retinoids are a hard cell, uh, but even then, if you start getting the inflammatory lesions down, you can maybe bring in retinoids to start opening up some of those plugged, um, plugged pores. Now, there are all sorts of tricks for getting kids to use retinoids but you've got to do a lot of education and a lot of selling at least in in, in my neck of the woods I try and match the retinoid to the skin type I try and make sure that I'm not going to over dry them right out of the gate one trick that you can do they don't have to start using retinoids nightly they can use them every other night or twice a week they just have to use them consistently if you're having problems with redness or irritation make sure they're moisturizing in the in the morning after applying the retinoids at night you can have them dilute the retinoid if they're if you you know these kids with keratosis pilaris or kids that are atopic you can uh, put the squeeze a little bit of the medication out in in the hand and then just use a very bland face cream and dilute it one-to-one weakening it and and getting it on their skin so that they can use it consistently until they get retinized and adjusted to it. Uh, But I encourage you to educate your patients how to work with the retinoids. All you gotta do is get them over that initial hump and get their skin used to the retinoids, and then uh, they can really help you in the future. So a variety of comedonal acnes. Some caveats, one, if there's not inflammation, there's no reason to use antibiotics. I see lots of patients come in from other providers, but I'm sure none of you would do this, um, the, uh, on antibiotics of some sort. The other thing I think that you've got to watch for, it's not well, uh, uh, well recognized always in the, in the textbooks is I have seen patients get ice pick scarring from non-inflammatory comedonal acne. It's not super common but it's a very tough subtype and if, they're, if you're struggling getting those kids better of course one of my patients was a, was a pediatrician's son um, who was just getting all these little divoted scars on his forehead eventually we ended up having to do isotretinoin even though he didn't have terrible nodulocystic cystic acne because he was scarring. So just watch for that. And be aware of these guidelines that have been published. I'm not going to go through them. But uh, again, I I think algorithms are very helpful as guides. But your job is to interpret them for the individual patient that's in front of you. All right, Um, patient number two, sort of moderate grade. She's got worsening acne. She flares with her menstrual cycle. But she has lesions continually. Painful at times. And most importantly, as obvious in this picture, she's a picker acne Excoriae. So what do we do with more inflammatory acne? This is, we talked about this in my systemic medication session before this, because this is where we start getting into some of the, the um, stickier wickets of dermatology. First of all, when you can do it, topical therapy should always be a consideration. It should always be something you think about. Inflammatory acne, benzoyl peroxide can still be quite helpful. Retinoids can still be quite helpful. There's good data on it. Um, But inflammation often indicates that you might need to do some additional anti-inflammatory agent and this is where we get into the controversial area of antibiotics um, or uh, hormonal modulation or agents like spironolactone. So in terms of oral antibiotics uh, I I had a slide that um, Uh, that did not make it into the final talk talk. but there's really good evidence actually that dermatology is doing a much better job being stewards of their antibiotic therapy. Overall from 2008 to 2016 antibiotic prescriptions for acne alone have dropped by almost 30 percent and overall antibiotic prescriptions by dermatologists have dropped about 36 percent. Interestingly Uh, prescriptions for dermatologic surgical procedures for antibiotics have gone up 60% so we're doing a better job from the antibiotic side of things uh, for the from the acne side of things all the current guidelines recommend limiting antibiotic therapy Systemic antibiotic therapy to three to six months now. I certainly there's a subset of my patients where I can get away with that I try to get them on antibiotics get them under control and pull them off but I'll be the first to admit that there's a number of my patients that I I while I can get their dosage reduced I can't really get them off the antibiotics without them flaring Um, Antibiotics can be very helpful. They can improve things fairly quickly and um, obviously is there there's good evidence that they work um, I personally that you know these there's discussion about can short antibiotic courses have longer lasting effects I I don't know in my practice I haven't consistently seen that there are a subset of patients where I'll see that but um, uh, Uh, it's certainly not consistent. And most importantly, most studies would suggest that in, in the case of inflammatory acne, topical retinoids are still underused. And that is one thing that I'm a stickler for. When I'm treating patients with oral antibiotics, I want them on a retinoid and I tell them, this is what's gonna allow me to take the antibiotic away. If we can get you under control, hopefully the antibiotic will cool them off in the short term and we get the retinoid going to then act as a preventative over the long term. Um, uh, You you guys know the antibiotics. There's also a new uh, cyclin antibiotic that's just been FDA approved. I don't have any experience with that, but um, there are some uh, new uh, things coming down the pipe. And then, of course, remember that the, the data on low-dose doxycycline, uh, you know, these low-dose antibiotics, I, I love this idea that you can give sub-antimicrobial dose antibiotics yet still get the benefit. It's difficult for me to do in practice because I'm typically limited to prescribing generics in my, in my patient population, so uh, it's actually easier for me to get 100 milligram doxycycline than 20 milligram periostap, but um, keep that in mind getting to as low a dose as possible or off is always the goal. Okay, but I think we should talk about the the, the worst of the worst cases, the really bad nodular cystics, the kids that come in that are scarring. In the old days I had a, a sort of a therapeutic ladder for my patients. You know, they would come in. I would uh, even kids with really bad acne, unless I was really my back was against the wall, or somebody had tried everything before they made it to me. I would usually work on get, starting them on oral antibiotics and topicals, and we'd try that for three months or six months. And um, uh, and and I definitely am getting away from that. Uh, oh, sorry, I forgot I had the summary slide in here. When you're using oral antibiotics. Benzoyl peroxide, always, unless they're allergic to it. If you're using antibiotics of any sort, the patient should be using benzoyl peroxide. um, And uh, uh, never do antibiotic monotherapy. Um, Sorry about that, that was one of my teaching points. And then oral contraceptives. um, We talked about this a little bit uh, in the last session. Oral antibiotics can create more improvement in the short term, but over the long term, they're equivalent. By about six months of therapy, oral contraceptives are just as effective. And um, certainly, if you've got a female patient, uh, I more and more in this day and age lean towards hormonal therapy uh, when uh, the patients and the families are receptive. In the last session, what we really talked about, where I work in Missouri, there's a lot of familial pushback sometimes about the idea of using oral contraceptives in a 14 year old, 15 year old, 16 year old patient. And so I do a lot of work educating my patients and selling them on how we're using a hormonal therapy. It's not the fact that it's their birth control pills is a side effect, right? I want the hormonal therapy for the acne. And the fact that there are several of these that are approved for acne has been a helpful selling point at times. I really do try and uh, use oral contraceptives when I can in lieu of, of antibiotics. And then spironolactone, there's just a very nice, very recent publication suggesting we're still underutilizing. Uh, uh, spironolactone. It's got a lot of applicability. In the last session we polled the audience. Most folks are now using spironolactone in younger and younger patients. There were some that were using it in 14 or 15 year olds uh, and I think in the in the, the right patients it could definitely be an option. Um, in terms of the oral contraceptives that, that have been approved, uh, they're the common ones like Yaz, Ortho, Tricyclin, or Yasmin. I think again, matching the oral contraceptive to your patient is is part of the art of it. Uh, I tend to like um, some of these less androgenic progestin-containing agents, though, in my practice. Okay, now we're now we're where I jump to, uh, which is this patient. So, in the old days, what I was saying is this is the kind of patient where I might make work up this therapeutic ladder because you wanted to get to know the patient. Can you can you trust them? Will they do what you say? All these types of things. And that's still a valid argument. But definitely in this day and age of better a- antibiotic stewardship, I know that uh, it, many of the folks in the last session were quite aware that they're prescribing uh, isotretinoin more than they did five years ago or ten years ago and I think I certainly am as well the the pendulum of isotretinoin use continues to swing back and forth and I've been at this long enough I've seen it go a couple different directions but um, it is a it is a great tool that we have at our disposal as long as we're using it responsibly And so this is a patient where I would walk in the room and and know she's going to end up on isotretinoin at some point, whether it's this visit or the next one. So what do we do for really bad nodular cystic acne that's scarring? We know we're going to have to go to oral therapy. It's not wrong to try hormones or or antibiotics, um, but you should be thinking, especially in a case like the one that we just saw, if I need to do oral uh, isotretinoin, how am I going to lay the groundwork for that? And so, um, and why do we care about the really bad acne? Well, the impacts that it has on our patients are profound. Dr. Rosen touched on it, so I don't think I need to belabor it. But we know that it is dramatically impactful to our our teenage patients' lives. The, the, The great it's, it's one of the the, mo, the most challenging things, I think, treating skin disease, is we all know and we see it every day with our patients, how much a, a given skin disease, whether it's nodulocystic cystic acne or bad atopic dermatitis, what an impact that can have on a person's life. And for these patients who are in some of the most critical years of their development, the fact that we can... Um, we, you know, that we have the tools at our disposal to help them with these types of conditions. I think we should be very aggressive in, in treating them. We want to try and prevent scarring so that we don't have long-term sequelae from their acne if we can help it. And again, you, you're you trying to prevent outcomes, well maybe not like Ange, maybe Angelina Jolie's okay, but the other three at least. So. Um, as Dr. Rosen touched on, there's an association between bad acne and suicidal ideation. That is actually one of the things that we think is reduced now. There's just a, pub- just a publication out suggesting that the use of oral isotretinoin actually decreases the risk of suicidal ideation in, in this age group. So, um, oral isotretinoin is the, is the name of the game. So you guys know you know it's a vitamin A derivative and all of that. It, why does it work so well? Because it affects all four mechanisms of acne development. And it's the only thing that we've got at our disposal that works almost every single time we use it, that is predictable, consistent, and can offer a potential cure of acne and I I see different numbers depending on which reference I pull but uh, 50 60 percent cure of acne after a full course there's debate about that but I certainly in my practice I tend to dose it aggressively but I I would say we're around 60 percent 66 percent and so to take somebody who can who comes in with that deep nodular cystic scarring acne and be able to turn it completely off and to do so fairly efficiently. Uh, I think more and more in my practice uh, we're just biting the bullet and doing that. So the side effects of isotretinoin you all know about, you manage them every day. The iPledge program, uh, uh, did anybody see the publications in JAMA Dermatology about iPledge? So uh, we all have to suffer with iPledge pledge and because isotretinoin is a teratogenic drug. And we all have to do the uh, pregnancy testing monthly to make sure that we're being responsible stewards of the drug, which we should do. Because I'm old enough to have been at this when they almost pulled it off the market the last time and uh, when it became such a hot button issue. So it is up to us to be very, very responsible with this this resource that we have which is the the one drug that we know can cure acne however the the data continues to suggest that the number of exposed pregnancies per year to isotretinoin is completely stable so the iPledge program has not reduced them Uh, it's around 200 pregnancies a year but it varies a little bit there's just kind of a warble like this average age is around 24 Um, so now Really, in truth, given the way that we do that program, we really shouldn't have any exposed pregnancies, but there's a a good publication suggesting that around a quarter to a third of uh, participants in iPledge admit to not being completely compliant with the their contraceptive methods or their um, or the the tenets of the program so I think it's up to us who prescribe isotretinoin to make sure that we're holding our patients accountable make sure we're doing uh, the you know towing the line when it comes to this because um, any you know there we really should be able to prevent any exposed pregnancies within reason the problem is there's also I've always felt like with with the iPledge system if you're allowing these oral, the oral contraceptives, condoms, all these different methods to be used, well, there's an inherent failure rate of these things. Nothing's perfect. So will we ever get down to zero exposed pregnancies? It's probably impossible because at some point, you know, oral contraceptives are only 98 or 99% effective or whatever, so anyhow, bless you. I think it's um, uh, important that we, um, uh, manage isotretinoin appropriately. So there's also a, a, a large report on, um, uh, oops, I didn't mean to go to that yet. There's also a, 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 a report at, um, looking at an enormous number of patients in the iPledge database and psychiatric issues and also very very reassuring. So again we had a discussion in the last session about who had seen um, uh, depression on isotretinoin. I'd like to ask you all that too. Who all here has seen depression on isotretinoin? Okay, and who, how many of those, how many of you who saw that thought it was directly due to the isotretinoin? Cool, yeah, much less, right? Um, And that's because the age group that we're treating with isotretinoin is the age group that has the highest rates of major depression of any age group of people. So I even though the data does not necessarily support a direct link between isotretinoin and depression, I certainly think that I've seen uh, situations where, where isotretinoin was leading to some depression. And the argument I made in the last session but I wanted to make to you is I think asking about depression, about mood changes, about rage is very, very important for us when we're managing these patients, even if the data doesn't support an association. And the reason for that is what I just said, which is this is the age group with the highest rates of major depression of any age group. And how often do 15 to 25 year olds go to the doctor? Almost never. One of the very few reasons they go see a physician is because of things like acne. So this is a chance for them to intersect with the healthcare system and it's a chance for us to pick up on whether they're having issues or major depression and hopefully intervene. So uh, I think that's very, very important. I'll get off my soapbox and these are uh, the questions that I put together for the end of this. So a patient is is to start isotretinoin but you'd like to keep them on oral antibiotics because of the severity of their acne. Which of the following antibiotics would you use? Good. So um, the right answer is A, amoxicillin. All the others are cyclines and have a risk of uh, contributing to pseudotumor. As somebody asked in the last session, well doxycycline doesn't cross the blood br- brain barrier like minocycline does, so it's got a lower risk of pseudotumor, um, c- uh, so could you use that? And I still would not use doxycycline, it's still contraindicated in, in combination with isotretinoin. Amoxicillin, cephalexin, those are okay. And I'll usually use one of those. When prescribing antibiotics for acne, what additional agent? should be used if at all possible. Red tape to keep the truth confined. Perfect, benzoyl peroxide is the answer good. You guys knew that, you didn't even need me to tell you that. The major concerning side effect of isotretinoin is which of the following? I sure hope you guys get this one right. teratogenicity without a doubt is number one two three four five six on the concerning side effect list it is the reason why this drug is a target and it is a reason why this drug was um, why people worked very hard to try and pull it from the market so it is absolutely paramount that we um, do a good job with that so lastly there's some new things uh, on the horizon um, things to be aware of are we're going to start having a flood of new drugs to, to work with for acne and again our job is to act as the interpreters. We're learning more about the role of biologics in our more, most severe types of acne. I just heard that there is a topical uh, anti-androgen that's been approved and then there's new topical antibiotics like minocycline foam. So there, there's going to be a lot more things to play with but again it's our job to help interpret those uh, for our patients and and guide them in terms of what to use. So. Um, I'm going to stop there because you need to eat. Thank you very much. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.